You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. The French Revolution set Europe ablaze. It was an age of enlightenment and progress, but also of tyranny and oppression. It was an age of glory and an age of tragedy. One man stood above it all. This was the Age of Napoleon. I'm Everett Rummage, host of the Age of Napoleon podcast. Join me as I examine the life and times of one of the most fascinating and enigmatic characters in modern history. Look for the Age of Napoleon wherever you find your podcasts. Hello, and thank you for joining the American Revolution. Today, episode 149, Lafayette Comes to America. In late July 1777, the Continental Congress was worried about the Northern British Army that had just captured Fort Ticonderoga and was marching southward toward New York City. The main Continental Army was still waiting for the larger British Army in New York City to make its move, most likely against Philadelphia. At this same time, a 19-year-old boy arrived in Philadelphia speaking almost no English. He asked Congress to commission him as a major general in the Continental Army. I mentioned a few weeks ago that the Marquis de Lafayette had received a commission at the end of July, but how this came to pass deserves a little more background. Lafayette is probably one of the most recognized names from the Revolution. How a teenager not only gained such a high military command and became one of the most famous Americans of the era needs some explanation. Lafayette obtained his position in French society in the traditional way. He was born into an important family with great wealth and power. His family had served the king since at least the 12th century. One of his ancestors had been a marshal of France during the Hundred Years' War and had served under Joan of Arc. His father served as a colonel, had been killed in 1759 at the Battle of Minden, when his son was less than a year old. Fun fact, the British general in charge of the artillery that killed his father was General William Phillips, who was now marching south in New York with General Burgoyne. In 1781, Phillips would die in Virginia while being bombarded by artillery under the command of General Lafayette. Lafayette's mother was from an even wealthier noble family and had come with a dowry including extensive land holdings in Brittany. When her husband died in battle, the family title and fortune fell to their only child. The boy was raised with the best private education that French nobility could provide. He was also raised with stories of French military glory. In 1770, his great-grandfather, uncle, and mother all died, leaving Lafayette with an even greater fortune. His estate produced the inflation-adjusted equivalent of well over a million dollars per year to support him. The young millionaire was still only 12 years old. His great-grandfather, before his death, had arranged for Lafayette to receive a lieutenant's commission in the Black Musketeers, the unit responsible for the king's security. He had also arranged for Lafayette to marry into another noble family with a direct blood relationship to King Louis. The marriage did not take place until 1774, when the couple were a little older. 
By the time of the marriage, Lafayette was 16 and his bride, Adrian, was 14. Adrian's father, the Duc de Ayenne, was not only a wealthy noble, but was also a general in the French army. As a wedding gift, the father-in-law promised Lafayette command of one of his cavalry companies when the boy turned 18. Lafayette lived with his wife's family and became close to the royal family, particularly Queen Marie Antoinette. Although he had been raised in wealth and luxury, Lafayette was not comfortable with court life. He wanted to fulfill his dreams of becoming a military officer. The thought of him fighting for the colonies came from a very unlikely source. In 1775, King George III's younger brother, the Duke of Gloucester, had visited France. The Duke and his wife attended a dinner hosted by the Comte de Broglie, who was at the time Lafayette's commander. Captain Lafayette attended the dinner where the Duke criticized his brother's handling of the American colonies and numerous other things. The two brothers had been at odds for years, the king having disapproved of the Duke's marriage years earlier. At the time of the dinner, word had only recently reached Europe about the battles of Lexington and Concord. Both the Duke and the Comte de Broglie were also Masons and spent much of the evening talking about Masonic notions of equality and the rights of man. Lafayette listened attentively and said later that it was that night that he decided to fight for the American cause. In June 1776, as part of a general military restructuring to save money, Lafayette was moved to the reserves, meaning he had no military duties. His career in the French army was going nowhere. This only increased his desire to go to fight for America. Because of his age, he could not leave without the permission of his father-in-law, who refused to let him go. Adrian had just given birth to the couple's first child. The Duc d'Ayenne did not want to see the boy go get himself killed on some military adventure before the family even got started. Lafayette also sought the support of his old commander, the Comte de Broglie, who also counseled against going to America. None of this deterred him, though. Lafayette received an audience with Silas Dean and somehow convinced him to grant a commission as Major General in the Continental Army. Now, at this time, Lafayette was only 19 years old and held a commission as only a captain in the French Army Reserves. That commission was only the result of his family's wealth and social status, not any actual military experience. Even so, Lafayette convinced Dean to grant him a commission. Part of it was his willingness to serve with no pay. Lafayette also convinced Dean that his service would increase French public support for the American cause. Lafayette would encourage the French government to become more involved in the cause of liberty. Dean granted General de Kalb a commission as Major General as well. By the end of 1776, news of the British capture of New York had reached France. Officials feared that the rebellion might be crushed and that sending French officers to their aid might only start a war with Britain. Besides, Lafayette's wife was now pregnant with their second child. His father-in-law still had no interest in letting Lafayette abandon his new family. 
Instead, the Duc de Ayen convinced Lafayette to go to London and visit the Duke's brother, who was at the time the French ambassador to Britain. Lafayette complied, gaining an introduction to British society. On his three-week trip, he met with General Henry Clinton, Lord George Germain, and even had an introduction to King George III. None of this changed his mind, though. When he returned to France, he did not go home. Instead, he planned to use the ship he had purchased to sail to America with General de Cobb and a number of other French officers ready to join the Continentals. At Bordeaux, the men boarded the ship, which he renamed the Victory. In signing papers with French immigration officials, he used his name, Gilbert du Mortier, thinking the use of his better-known title, Marquis de Lafayette, would set off alarms. He did send a note to his wife, letting her know what he was doing. Then, rather sailing directly to America, the ship first docked at a port in Spain. By this time, Lafayette's wife had received his note and alerted her father. The Duc de Ayen went straight to the king, who issued orders that all French officers, especially Lafayette, should not go to America and should return to France if they had already left. Lafayette received word of these orders while in Spain and returned to Bordeaux. Lafayette wanted to go to Paris, but was instructed to go to Marseille, where his in-laws were staying at the moment. Lafayette originally planned to obey until he got a message from his old commander, the Comte de Broglie. De Broglie thought he might convince the Continental Congress to give himself full command of the Continental Army. Remember, I discussed this back in episode 115, that the French actually thought that the Americans, without any trained military officers, might be willing to hand over the entire command of the Continental Army to the French. The American colonies would come under France's control and would possibly end up becoming French colonies in the end. The Comte de Broglie wanted de Kolb, who was on Lafayette's ship, to go to America and see if this was a possibility. De Kolb had instructions to negotiate such an agreement with the Continental Congress. Lafayette was not part of these negotiations. He was just the rich kid who was providing the ship to take them to America. In fact, it was de Broglie's aide, de Kolb, who had introduced Lafayette to Dean and helped him to get his commission, obtaining that major general's commission for de Kolb at the same time. Also joining the ship as a passenger was the Viscount de Moray, who had also been promised a commission as a major general in the Continental Army. Broglie sent an aide to Bordeaux to tell Lafayette that the government actually did want him to go to America, but had to forbid it publicly in order to avoid war with Britain. It's not entirely clear that this was true. In fact, there were many within the government who held differing views on how France should get involved, and no one was really certain about the true feelings of the king or foreign minister Vergen. With de Broglie's assurance, though, Lafayette pretended to depart for Marseille and then set sail for America on April 20, 1777. During the voyage, Lafayette got to know the other officers planning to fight in America. He soon realized that not all of them had particularly ideological motives. De Moray, in particular, seemed relatively hostile to the idea of a republic that would be independent of Europe. 
in one diatribe to his fellow passengers, Desmarais summed up his view of the Americans. Fanaticism, insatiable greed, and poverty. These are, unfortunately, the three causes that incessantly drive to these shores masses of immigrants who come to slay the natives and destroy in a wasteful spirit forests as old as the world itself. They drench a still virgin soil with the blood of the Aborigines and fertilize it with thousands of corpses scattered over fields seized by force. In this picture, which is only too true, do you see fewer horrors than could be shown in the continent which we are leaving. French ships ordinarily did not sail straight to America. Doing so risked seizure by the British Navy. Instead, they would travel to a French colony in the West Indies and then make a quick dash to the continent from there. Lafayette, however, was having none of that. He wanted to sail directly to America. He was in a hurry to arrive, and besides, stopping at a French colony would give only another opportunity for government officials to stop them and send them home. Their ship had no significant cannons as defense. If they had been stopped, they would have no chance of defending themselves. The gamble, however, paid off, as the ship made its way across the Atlantic without incident. After two months, the party landed in South Carolina in mid-June 1777. The crew first encountered a group of slaves working to collect oysters along the shore. These men guided them to the nearest plantation, owned by Major Benjamin Huger. There, the landing party was met with barking dogs and guns pointed at them. Huger thought they were a British landing party. Once they convinced him of who they were, he invited them into his home and welcomed them. After obtaining local pilots, the ship made its way to Charleston. Lafayette, DeKalb, and a few other officers opted to travel overland, some on horseback and some walking. The group reached Charleston on June 17th. When the group first arrived in town after their march, they probably looked rather scruffy. Many other French would-be officers had passed through Charleston. Many of these men had been failures without any real military abilities looking for opportunities in America. So, at first, Charleston gave this group the cold shoulder. But after their ship arrived the following day, they realized that these were men of substance who could be a real help to the cause. The group then enjoyed eight days of feasts and celebrations with the town's elite. At this point, Lafayette donated most of the supplies that he had brought with him aboard his ship to the South Carolina militia. The French officers met with John Rutledge, then president of South Carolina. They also inspected the defenses with General William Moultrie. Both men, like Lafayette, were also Freemasons, which helped to create an instant bond between the men. After that, the French officers made their way overland to Philadelphia, a trip taking many more weeks. Along the way, they stopped in North Carolina to meet with Governor Richard Caswell. On July 27th, the group finished its 650-mile journey to Philadelphia. They arrived on a Sunday when Congress was not in session. Still eager to make contact, they sought out President John Hancock at his home. Hancock blew off the group 
and said they should seek out Robert Morris, who headed the committee that dealt with French relations. On Monday morning, the French delegation put on their dress uniforms and presented their credentials to Congress. Their welcome was less than they expected. The three would-be major generals were, in Lafayette's words, treated like dogs. They were left standing out in the street in front of Independence Hall for some time. Eventually, two delegates, Robert Morris and James Lavelle, who spoke French, came to speak with them outside. Morris informed them that Dean had exceeded his authority in offering them commissions as major generals. Congress was interested in getting a few officers with engineering experience, but that was it. They gave the group, who had expected to be greeted as heroes, a nice thanks but no thanks, and asked them to leave. Congress was simply in no mood for more French officers at this time. The two French officers that had already received commissions as generals in the Continental Army, de Boer and de Fermoy, had both proven disasters. You may recall General Fermoy had run away from the enemy at first sight near Trenton, leaving his regiment on its own, and had just recently set fire to his cabin at Mount Independence, thus revealing the secret retreat from Fort Ticonderoga. A few months before Lafayette had arrived in Philadelphia, Charles Tronson du Caudray had come with another commission from Dean promising to make him a major general as well. Caldray had proven arrogant and demanding, insisting that he be made commander of artillery along with an expensive salary. American generals, who by this time had combat experience and were leading their armies, were offended by the idea that a bunch of Frenchmen could just come in and be given a command over them. Several American generals, including Knox, Sullivan, and Green, threatened to resign if this happened. In late July, Congress was still in negotiations with Ducaldray over what position he would get. They were not interested in his leadership, but they also did not want to offend France by telling him to pound sand. It was in the middle of all this that these three additional would-be major generals showed up on Congress's doorstep, demanding their promised commissions as well. So, this background explains the cold shoulder that Lafayette and his companions received. Congress was in no mood to have its army led by a bunch of French adventurers. Lafayette, though, was not ready to take no for an answer. He met with several delegates, including Robert Morris, who was focused on building the alliance with France. Lafayette convinced him of his ardor for the cause, but he also made clear that he would serve as a volunteer without pay. Not only that, he would pay the salaries of the French officers who served as his aides. It also helped that Benjamin Franklin had sent a letter to Congress that, given Lafayette's position and his family's importance in France, this commission was important to America's relationship with France. So, on July 31st, three days after his arrival, Congress changed his tune and agreed to assign the new volunteer major general to Washington's staff. A few days later, General Washington came to town to brief Congress on the British Army then approaching Philadelphia. Washington and Lafayette met at a dinner and hit it off immediately. The commander invited the new general to inspect the city defenses that evening, which thrilled Lafayette. The two men walked and talked that evening. 
one could almost hear them say, I think this is the beginning of a beautiful friendship. For the other would-be generals, though, the beginning was not quite so smooth. A few weeks after Lafayette's appointment, Congress gave Du Cordray a commission as Inspector General, which gave him his generalship, but left him outside the immediate command structure. In doing so, Congress merely put off what was going to be a major confrontation for control of the Army's artillery. Du Caudray conveniently ended this potential confrontation a month later when his horse fell into a river and he drowned. General de Cobb was offended not only by his rejection, but also by the fact that Congress honored Lafayette's commission, despite the fact that Lafayette was a far lower-ranking officer and less experienced. de Cobb advised Lafayette to take the commission, even though the young man offered to resign out of protest for Congress denying a commission to de Kalb. After his rejection, de Kalb simply asked that Congress pay for his return trip to France. Over the next couple of months, Congress kept de Kalb cooling his heels. During that time, de Kalb actually proved that he was not quite so arrogant and argumentative as de Caudray. Several members began to warm up to the idea of granting him a commission. In mid-September, about the time Du Caudray drowned and the British were moving in on Philadelphia, Congress offered a commission as a major general to de Kalb. In conditioning his acceptance, de Kalb requested that he be given retroactive seniority ahead of Lafayette, that his aide also receive appointment as major, and that his wife would receive a pension if he died during the war. Congress accepted his terms after some discussion and by October, de Kalb joined Washington's army in the field shortly before they retreated to Valley Forge. The Viscount de Moray never received his promised commission. He returned to France, embittered by his experience, and had nothing good to say about the Continental Congress or America generally. Next week, General Howe begins his campaign to take Philadelphia. This episode is supported by the food delivery service, Factor. It's spring now, and we all want to spend more time outdoors, enjoying life, not the kitchen. Factor ensures you have fresh, never-frozen, chef-crafted, dietitian approved meals that you can prepare in just two minutes. Each week, you get a menu of 35 meal options, as well as 60 add-ons, including breakfasts, on-the-go lunches, snacks, and beverages. You can customize your orders to get as much or as little as you want each week and can pause or make changes to your orders at any time. Factor is less expensive than takeout and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. It's the perfect solution if you're looking for fast, upscale options done easily. Now, they even have a special deal for fans of the American Revolution podcast. Head to factormeals.com ARP50 and use that code ARP50 to get 50% off your first box, plus 20% off your next box. That's code ARP50 at factormeals.com slash ARP50 to get 50% off your first box, plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. Hey, thanks for joining the American Revolution Podcast After Show. 
Special thanks to Trey Nance, who supports the podcast at the Hamilton Club level, as well as Tyson France, who runs Liberty & Co. and supports the show at the Robert Morris Circle level. If any of you visit the Liberty & Co. website, which is at libertyand.co, use the code AMREV, A-M-R-E-V, to get 20% off any purchases of the many Revolutionary War and Founding Era items available there. I appreciate all my supporters on Patreon who have stuck with me through these difficult times. Again, for those who have had to drop out, I totally understand, and please continue to enjoy the show. This week, I talked about how the Marquis de Lafayette got his start in America. Lafayette would go on to prove himself several more times on the battlefield, but his real impact on America was to help with the effort to involve France with the American cause. As we'll see in future episodes, he actually returns to France for several years during the war in order to lobby for more assistance to the American cause, coming back, though, in time for the victory at Yorktown. After the war, Lafayette returned again to France to resume his life there. He was a national celebrity in France as well as America. The French philosopher Voltaire called him the hero of two worlds. Of course, Lafayette would go on to play a key role in the French Revolution as well. He commanded the French National Guard during the storming of the Bastille, which became perhaps the most famous symbol of the Revolution. He's also credited with designing the tricolor flag that France uses to this day. Lafayette, though, never became a radical. His relatively moderate positions created problems for him on both the right and the left during the French Revolution. He spent several years in prison. Lafayette's wife, Adrienne, was also imprisoned, along with her sister, mother, and grandmother. The sister, mother, and grandmother all went to the guillotine during the Reign of Terror. Lafayette and his wife were only spared due to the diplomatic efforts of U.S. officials in France at the time. Even after his death, Lafayette has become the personification of Franco-American relations. When the American army first reached France in 1917 to fight for the liberation of France in World War I, they famously announced, Lafayette, we are here. That meant that the U.S. was finally repaying its debt to France for assistance in liberating America. Lafayette, of course, has numerous honors within America, including the square in front of the White House being named in his honor. He's also had both U.S. and French naval ships named after him. In addition, he has dozens of U.S. cities and counties named in his honor. As recently as 2002, Lafayette's memory came into service once again. Franco-American relations hit a low after 9-11 and France's refusal to support the Bush administration's Iraq war. That year, Congress named Lafayette an honorary citizen of the U.S., only the sixth person ever to receive that honor. It helped to remind Americans that, whatever the momentary political disagreements, France and the United States had a long and enduring relationship that went back centuries. With all that in mind, I want to get to this week's book recommendation. There are quite a few really good biographies about Lafayette. The one I went with this week is called The Marquis, Lafayette Reconsidered 
by Laura Arriccio. This is a relatively recent biography, first published in 2014. It's thorough and well-written, covering the Marquis's entire life in about 400 pages. The book won the 2015 American Library in Paris Book Award. The author, Dr. Arriccio, holds a Ph.D. in 18th century French history. This, though, appears to be her only full-length book. She's currently the dean of Fordham College at Lincoln Center. So, if you want to read a good Lafayette biography, The Marquis Lafayette Reconsidered is a good place to go. For my online recommendation this week, I went with another famous Lafayette biography, which is available as a free ebook on archive.org. It's called The Life of General Lafayette, published in 1847. The author is probably someone you may have also heard of, John Quincy Adams. The book is actually a reprint of an oration that John Quincy Adams gave to a joint session of Congress in 1834. The book also includes a short bio on Tadeusz Kosciuszko, uh, the Polish officer who served in the American Revolution as well. At the time that Adams made the oration, he was serving in the House and had already completed his one term as president. This oration came on the occasion of Lafayette's death in 1834. You can search for The Life of General Lafayette on archive.org to find it. Or, as always, there is a direct link to the ebook on my website at amrevpodcast.com. Well, that's all for this week. I hope you will join me again next week for another American Revolution podcast. What does Sputnik have to do with student loans? How did a set of trembling hands end the Soviet Union? How did inflation kill moon bases? And how did a former president decide to run for a second non-consecutive term? These are among the topics we deal with on the My History Can Beat Up Your Politics podcast. We tell stories of history that relate to today's news events. Give a listen. My History Can Beat Up Your Politics, wherever you get podcasts.